welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. Welcome to the latest episode of Inspiring Futures. Um, this episode comes to you from Brooklyn and the UK, uh, the Midlands to be specific. Um, I'm delighted. It's been a few months in the planning um, that Tracy follows is uh, my guest today. Tracy, I would describe you as a multi-talented um, strategist, futurist, writer, presenter, TED talker. I mean, there's probably a, a, a few other things I could add. Um, but welcome to Inspiring Futures, and thank you for agreeing to come on the show. Um, thank you very much. That's far too generous. <laughs> um, you know, as we usually do with, with all with all the guests, um, is to do the kind of the resume, the ninety second resume. Sometimes it stretches out like five minutes, but um, it's the kind of simple question: is what got you to where you are today? So it's over to you. Mm. Interesting. So as futurists know, they have to go quite far back um, into the past to work out what's going to happen in the future. So it's an interesting question. Um, so I went to university, studied philosophy and then did a, a master's in technology policy, if you like, um, and then found myself in advertising. <laughs> so I started in advertising in the early 90s and, and worked as an account person um, in the Midlands at an agency, very well respected creative agency called Cogent. Um, and then I saw an ad um, in the back of campaign, actually, for uh, an advertising manager for one-to-one, -one, a now defunct brand, but it was very exciting, a very exciting brand in an exciting industry, mobile telco at the time. And I ended up moving down to London um, and then um, working client side in one-to-one, T-Mobile -one, and, and BT. Um, and then coming back to advertising as a strategist at uh, Lowe and then VCCP and then ending up as CSO at uh, JWT in London. But all through that time, I'd worked on technology and was very interested in innovation. And particularly when I was at JWT, I'd realised that um, though we were always looking for insights in the industry, by the time you'd kind of actioned, identified and actioned an insight, um, it kind of passed you by. So <clears throat> while I was at JWT, um, I transformed the market insight or intelligence um, department into planning foresight. And that's where I really got into futures and foresights um, and realized actually you can do it as a job. And it took me a long time to find the community and the people and work out what was going on. And I left JWT and I went to um, the University of Houston where I, I did the one of the courses in futures and um, started from there and set up my own business. And um, yes, I suppose you can say as a futurist, never look back. <laughs> um, but uh, that's how I find myself in the futures field. And I've been doing that since about 2015 and I just it was is what I was meant to do I think how 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 you know what did you what what is it about it that that makes it so appealing to you how does it fit with your personality and your sort of needs in terms of why why are you the perfect fit for it I think um even when I was a kid I was busy reading sci-fi and interested in technology and innovation but 
but also really the societal implications. So one of the things about sci-fi that's interesting to me is the way that you can kind of play out alternative worlds and test out the limits of your ethics, if you like, in a in a virtual reality. Um, and so I, I, I've always enjoyed that. I've always been interested in it. And I think in some respects, it's probably it's kind of an escapism from the reality of whatever's going on now, you know, to look further afield and to not just look at one probable future, but investigate lots of alternative possible futures. I find that really rewarding um, and really stimulating. And it, it just makes you think and feel about the types of futures you'd like to see unfold. And certainly when you're working with clients, you know, they've got their own um, ideas as every individual does have about the future and you do come to realize just how many mental models and assumptions and biases we we have about what's possible in the future and that those aren't just possibilities they're limitations as well so trying to uncover those um, is always interesting and it's an interesting process I think and of course at the moment I mean everybody's saying oh you know the future's coming at us so fast we've accelerated towards this sort of digital virtual kind of way of living or whatever with the pandemic yeah it's true but you know it doesn't have to be the way it is at the moment and there's plenty of possible alternative ways that this could pan out and so to me that's just just endlessly fascinating really yeah I think I mean I, I, I completely agree with you I mean one of um one one of my I mean the, the whole purpose of the podcast was supposed to be about the future it was kind of I haven't really delivered on the uh, uh, the mission at all. Um, I can help. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. This is not a rare exception. Um, I think the future is so hard to talk about, actually, for most people, um, it, 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 in, unless you're in the discipline. Um, people have a really tough time. But I did have a really good conversation with Lawrence Wilkinson, who was one of the founders of GBN. Um, mm. Mm. that was kind of a really awesome think tank. Um, they did a lot of the actual thinking around minority report as to what the advertising environment should be in a set in a sci-fi movie, you know, so mm. working directly with Spielberg. Um, but they kind of came out of the shell. There was a group at shell that was famous because they actually predicted the oil crash in the early seventies. And so they had all kinds of tools and things that they used and then were starting to apply them to, to organizations. Um, I think what one of the, the challenges we've kind of seen is that there's a lot of sort of shoulder shrugging and ostriches sticking their heads in the sand. Well, the future's happening so fast, I can't, we can't even think about it. You know, it, you know what I mean? The sort of... Um, pushing back against trying to understand the future because it's almost, they feel it's almost impossible. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you'd encountered much of that. Yeah, I mean, I've got a whole presentation on that. Um, it, it started as a bugbear um, when I presented at Silicon uh, Beach and um, I was saying the whole thing, the language around the future is now. Well, the future isn't now, now is now, and there's still a future, are actually futures are plural. So, you know, there, there are possible futures and they're different to now. And But part of that language of the future is now is people kind of um, 
comforting themselves that oh um it's all right it's it's completely um manageable this thing and I, I don't really need to think too hard about the future um because it's, it's just happening now I just need to deal with the present it's it's a similar it's all wrapped up in a similar sort of thing as the sort of future denial so I start a lot of meetings and there's always one person in the room who says well of course you can't predict the future no one knows what's going to happen in the future um so I can always pinpoint them okay so that's it's like the person you get in the can in the focus group when you're showing them advertising concepts <laughs> they just hate everything <laughs> there's always one person who says that oh, we, no one knows what lies ahead well okay to to some extent that's true obviously but one of the ways in which we're thinking about what lies ahead and the impact it has on now even though the two things are not the same is that we can scope out these different possible alternative futures and we can work out if those were to happen um what decisions should we be making today? You know, either to um, avoid them or either to, you know, make sure that they do um, come to life. So, you know, you're talking about GBM Network, Peter Schwartz was part of that and Pierre Wack, and they talk about um, scenario planning and scenarios and how to construct different scenarios. But the whole point of that is, is to think about the future, play it out, and then for that to have an impact on the decision-making you make today. So there's always a dynamic between the between today, the present, and the future tomorrow, but they're not one and the same thing. Yeah, it's a strategic discipline at its best, you know. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, another thing that fascinates me is the sort of um, how the impact history has had on future thinking. So, you know, just sort of, you know, you look back to the sort of Jules Verne thinking of the future um, to America, which is almost a land founded on the future. You know, mm. people came here for bet a better future. So that, and then what I find fascinating living here is we've sort of, people are struggling, you know, you sort of got the 50s idealized future, which is, a better world for everyone, modern conveniences, you know, jetpacks, flying cars. And then you sort of come to now where you've sort of got culturally this dystopian future, which I think, is, I think people are having a real, it's a real, you know, the future has always been, the future has for a long time always been bright. And you, we must, and people say, well, it was, you know, the Vietnam War or it was kind of things in the late 60s that when we moved from that idealism of the, the 68, 69 to kind of, I think that was the first time, you know, we looked at, they, people looked at ecology and the first rise of the environmental movement. And so to see how um, these different futures play out over time is also really fascinating. Um, sorry, my dog is howling. <laughs> I 
Sorry, my daughter, there's still lots of sirens and things. And Oh, yes, I hear the siren. Um, I, I think what's interesting about that is that um, I wonder how uh, optimistic people did feel about the future right after the Second World War. So as you've got all that devastation around you and you've got to kind of rebuild a society, um, I wonder how optimistic people did feel. Sure, by maybe the 68, 70s, maybe people were feeling much more comfortable and optimistic. But I feel like we are at a phase now where it's almost like post-war in that you had a system that was working for a long time. It was all about managing and planning. I'm talking about the system that was um, really instituted straight after the war. Everything's ordered. It's pretty hierarchical. Information flows downwards. Um, experts are at the top, etc., and that's the system that everybody has kind of worked within and towards. Um, and what we've seen over the last sort of twenty years um, is is the increasing sort of fragility of that system. And now what we're seeing is the the failure of it and and the crumbling of it as a new system struggles to be born, which is much more connected interconnected because it's digital um, it's a network society you are connected to people all over the place business is global etc etc we know all the trends that come out of it but that's the truth of it and so what's happening at the moment is we're in this sort of interregnum this post-normal weird limbo land um, where the old system is has failed and is we've just got the vestiges of it in a sense and um, all of the institutions are cracking and we're we're seeing some of the um some of the weaknesses of them and that the new emergent system isn't quite there yet and so i think that's why people might feel it's a little dystopian or that it's frightening um because it's hard to get a grip on um, and it hasn't really fully emerged yet. So we're not quite sure 100% what we're dealing with. So I think that's a lot of what's going on. And of course, there's lots of tensions showing up in culture and in society. Um, and technology is exacerbating some of that at the moment. And um, and so, yeah, it's, um, it's <laughs> an interesting time. But I think that's what's going on. And that's why people feel it's dystopian. But it doesn't have to be dystopian. As I've said before, it's there are many alternative possible futures, not just the one slash yeah. dystopian future. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really. I think that's really interesting. I, I years and years ago, I was invited for some bizarre reason. I don't still don't know why. I was invited by the Romanian Advertising Association <laughs> to present um, at their annual conference, and uh, you know that was a country in 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 rapid going through rapid transformation from one system to, literally from one system to another. And the general consensus of the people I spoke to was, if you're over 30, you're screwed. Cause you just mm. will, you, you will, won't be able to learn the new way of the new system. If you're under 30, you have a chance and you might, if you are the right type of person, be able to thrive. And I thought that was just a really interesting sort of anecdotes mm. about changing systems. And I think that's a lot of where the fear comes from. Um, you have got a digitally connected, digitally savvy um, generation who have 
the prerequisite skills and aptitudes to cope. And then I think you have others who aren't. I mean, I, I was um, uh, looking at this video I remember, a few months ago of this kid. I mean, it, it was just so interesting. You know, we all talk about having worked in advertising, we all talk about creativity. We have our own definition of what that creativity is. But I watched this video with this kid who just understood Twitch video game culture like no other. He knew the people who mattered in this subculture and he knew the language of that subculture and he knew the channels in which to communicate. And he literally demonstrated all of this knowledge and the ability to set up, set up a business to exploit that knowledge in five minutes. Mm -hmm. You know, so basically being able to um, identify an individual, have that individual shout out the fact that he, this guy, protagonist, had a new line of merchandise um, to, this, to this influences thousands of followers who are following live. And this guy literally 10 minutes before had set up a t-shirt line. And as soon as the connection was made, the money started flowing into his account because to do that, to do that was so damn simple. You know, it literally was a few clicks of the mouse, a little bit of Photoshop, and he had a business. Mm -hmm. Well, that's um, one of the things. I mean, we're in this this new system. This, I mean, it's about collaboration and creativity, whereas the old system was about you know the ordered nature of things and and management. Um, and so there are there is a generation that are all over the tools and and know exactly how to collaborate in in very creative ways, and then produce something you know immense immensely creative in terms of the output but also as you su suggest to monetize it to merchandise it um it's kind of all of that entrepreneurial skill is built into the sort of digital interconnected framework that we're now operating within and yes you know there are a lot of people over 30 or over 50 or whatever that um aren't able to um navigate that that world uh, understandably yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, so this week is a, an important week for you because your book is launched, released, The Future of You. So that's exciting stuff, right? It's exciting, yes. Uh, you know, when you think the day will never come. <laughs> <laughs> so um, <laughs> is this the first book? Is this the first book you've written? I co-authored a book with John Griffiths on the origins of account planning um, called 98% oh, Data. I think I remember that. That was great. Yeah. Um, and I've done some e-books, but uh, yes, this is the first book I've, um, I'm the sole author of. So you can blame me 100%. <laughs> to take us through the, the, the process of um, you want to write a book, how, how, did, it all, how did it all come about? Oh, gosh, I'm trying to remember that. So, gosh, it was years ago, maybe 2017, autumn 2017, I think. Um, I knew somebody who um, worked at a publisher's. I managed to get in contact with 
one of the publishers there and um what you end up having to do is is pitch your idea so people like you and i and advertising folk i suppose should be quite used to it um it's always very difficult to pitch your own idea rather than someone else's well certainly different um so you have to scope out the idea pitch it um you know talk about why it's going to be of interest at a certain time with a certain audience and um yes they very kindly took me on board gave me an advance and um and i set to writing it um now i should have finished it at the end of well a year year before i did um but actually i was quite busy with the business and trying to you know set that up and get that going properly and so I was a little bit behind on the book and as it happened it was just phenomenal timing because I was writing a book about the future of identity and I'd already got the sort of elements I wanted to cover um, but actually what happened as the pandemic took hold and then governments particularly in liberal democracies took the decision to lock everyone down and and crash their own economies um, actually as we've gone through 2020 the very notion of identity and all the challenges I was wanted to point out in the book were kind of, I could see them happening in much more the near future than the far future. And so the timing of it was brilliant. And actually, as it so happens this week, um, with, the, with the book being published in the House of Commons, they're actually going to debate vaccination certificates, um, which comes back to the idea of, you know, digital identity and the notion of personal identity and how much control you can have over it and who controls you and your data, et cetera. Um, but that's all happening this week. And so the timing is absolutely perfect. So yes, it's one of the things about a futurist. It's not just about trying to pinpoint and make people aware of the trends that are ahead. It's really as much about the when these trends are going to happen and how they're going to impact um, as, the, as the trend itself. So in, in your book, um, one thing obviously interests me a lot is, and I, and I think this is um, a real publishing secret, which is I think publishers know how to sell books. And, you know, the, the, the whole idea that um, potentially this could be quite a, a heavy, almost academic topic, mm. but um, when you have this, you know, you have the future of you and then you have the subhead, can your identity survive? It's almost like, I've got, I've got to pick this up. <laughs> I really want to answer that question. Um, and I wonder how much of that was, was, was that, that seems to be like a key part of the dialogue you have as an author of a piece of uh, nonfiction that sort of, you know, strategy, culture, technology, you know, a lot of the stuff that we plan is, you know, I know when they get into writing the, and I know one friend of mine in particular who, who really was challenged by his editor to, you know, it's got to be on an airport book stand and someone's got to want to pick it up, you know, was that something that you knew consciously or was that something that emerged in the, in the process? Oh yeah, well that, that's interesting actually because when I pitched it, I always had in my mind the future of you as the title. Mm. I just had been thinking about identity. I'd realized it was fragmenting. Um, you'll notice from the first story of what happened to me um, yeah. in the digital environment that it already hit me that something bigger um, was happening here in terms of the implications um, societally. 
and culturally and on the self in terms of identity. And so that was already, I was, I'd already got a picture of the future of you in my mind's eye. But I, you know, will say the first couple of chapters I wrote when I really started writing, you know, none of that's made it into the final book. Um, what I knew I wanted to do was move it from a really macro conversation about big tech to a really intimate personal conversation about little you and little me, um, in that most of the commentary around some of these technologies and their implications and impacts are very much at the sort of industry or sector level or national level or regional level. To me, it feels quite remote to the everyday person. And I really wanted to make this about you, you know, your personal identity. It's very important to you. So what are you doing to find out and to investigate and interrogate the ways in which some of these changes um, are going to affect you and your future. And that's really what I wanted to try and do. And I think the publishers were really, really supportive of that. And so even though the first few chapters I was writing didn't quite meet that standard that we'd set for ourselves and I'd set for myself. And so I scrapped it and started again. That's one of the reasons I was a little bit behind. I just started, I started writing again trying to have in mind that this is supposed to be very, very personal. And so, you know, starting with that story, a personal experience, and then, and then moving out from that. And I think, you know, who doesn't want to read about the impact it's going to have on them as individuals, not technologies and industries and sectors and, and, and you know, news items that feel, you know, like that, there's nothing you can do about some of the big platforms and what's going to happen, you know, and the big words around technocracy, scientism, all of that. Actually, these are all around, they're swirling around as trends. They're having an impact, but they're having an impact on you. So what does it mean for you? And so was, we were always trying to bring it back to that, really. And I think you'll see from the chapters as I've tried to construct the book, it's everything from sort of, you know, connections and relationships to the influence of media to you know artificial intelligence and the brain and replacements and interactions with the brain and the machine it's we even go sort of beyond death into the digital afterlife so it really is you know trying to trying to um, coordinate and represent all the areas that you as an individual have in your life and want to probably maintain in your life and therefore you know will want to be better informed about um what that means for you what do you what do you think um we've learned in the pandemic because you know as you said for a year now it's actually a year um we've been under lockdown so we've sort of been in, we've all been involved in this interesting experiment where our reliance on digital personally has been extreme mm. and I wonder what that's done to us you know you could say naively well it's made us want the things that aren't digital even more you know that um, we now value you know the things that we were taking for granted maybe a little bit um, you know, I mean, you do read stories about that and how family life has changed and all those other things. And, um, you know, so it makes me, it makes me wonder 
um, whether there whether there is going to be more kind of um, people are going to look at things a little bit more carefully now than they would have done had this not happened. And I think the things they're going to look at more carefully are, are their digital relationships. Hmm. I think so. Um, because they can only do, you know, there's a, there's a limit. I think there's, we started to understand, I think we've understood the limitations, the limitation to them. They can only do so much. And that as humans that we need, there's sort of the, the tactile, the tangible, the physical things that digital can't yet replace. Not saying it won't, but it can't yet replace. Mm. Well, some people do. And some people, or all people, will need different things at different times. I think yeah. that's one of the things we've learned. So what could be the role of some of these um, digital or virtual versions of things? The biggest change, I think, generally in technology is that we used to we used to view um, virtual, the virtual world, as a sort of um, as either a copy or a, a stand-in substitute. Mm -hmm. I, it's not really as good as the real-life world, you know. It's but it's getting there. I mean, you'd, you'd see that being talked about, you know, in terms of games, um, you know, exploring with uh, virtual avatars, some of these virtual worlds. But actually, I think the flip that's been made is that we can take. Um, some of the virtual elements um, for what they are um, at their own face value now. So in a funny sort of way, over 2020, lots of virtual things became more valuable than the physical things because the fact of the matter was that the physical versions of things were regarded as dangerous and, and quite harmful. Yeah. Um, and actually the virtual ones were, were safe. So I think that's, I think that's, helped us we talked about assumptions and unpacking our assumptions at the, you know the beginning of the conversation this is one of the assumptions we went into the pandemic with and i think we've come out with a completely different view of it the value exchange um, has completely changed and now we value certain virtual elements objects things experiences services um, as having a value in and of themselves not being a copy of something that's oh it, it's better in the real world um, and you can see that playing out now with um, NFTs and virtual yeah. currencies and the virtual world is taking on its own infrastructure now. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think you think absolutely make, make sense. The other, the other thing that I, 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 I mean, obviously this is going back into the macro conversation, um, but it, it seems that these technologies have such a hold on us. Um, the, the sort of uh, uh, addictiveness, seductiveness, addictiveness inbuilt into a lot of them that make it sort of I, the way I the way I would describe it as. I know I should be careful and I know I should read the 12 pages of small print um, that I need to read before I install this app on my phone, but I need to do this. I need to get on this. And that, that right now is more important than reading any mm. legalese. So there's sort of a, to me, that's a very interesting, um, powerful seductiveness about these technologies um that um 
force it's almost like in the balance sheet of you know what the advantages are versus the disadvantages and the advantages are seem so great um that people overlook the disadvantages i guess that's well, a behavioral economic that's an interesting point but once again i don't know i think i'd challenge whether um they are that addictive or or whether we've just decided to um put our own kind of responsibility for that aside um i i think you know and i do mention this in the book the amount of experiments that have been done on you know whether people just sort of uh, press a button to get to go where they want to get to um, without really thinking about, as you say, the terms and conditions and not really reading them. But we all kind of know. So why don't we do it? Um, well, yeah, we're lazy. Um, but also we sort of think, oh, it'll be OK or we'll blame someone else. It's all very well when you're sort of signing up to, I don't know, someone's Substack newsletter or you're on a feed of a social networking site or a forum or something but once we play that out into the future if you start to think about some of the um technological enhancements that will happen to our body to our physicality not just some of the devices that we can hold or watch or put on our desk and um media that we can um, view but media that's almost um, integrated within our own physical form once you start to think about that then you know say you want I don't know um, you're getting a chip you want um, the latest software update it's going you're going to download yourself a new language you don't need to learn it because you can just download it let's say um, that's all very well and it's great and humans will want those upgrades they'll want to be at their very best they want to be fulfilling their potential but the fact of the matter is, who is the corporation? What is the company that is providing that update? And therefore, what have you signed up to? And how much of you and your personal data do they own? So very quickly, I think we're going to get from a, oh, aren't we a bit lazy? And it's not really fair because these media, digital media types addict us to their, you know, um, substance, um, which is, you know, I don't know, news um, to okay, I'm connected to this network now on which I'm very dependent for some cognitive functions. Um, what have I signed up to? What am I allowed to do? What are they allowed to do to me? Um, and it all might sound fanciful to some people, but you only have to look at something like the World Economic Forum's Internet of Bodies um, a, a report, where you're starting to hear, you know, and, and read about biobanks and the sharing of um, biological data for the common good. And so all of these things are sort of swirling around and they're happening at the moment. And I think to a certain extent, we're still stuck in this. It'll be all right in the end. And this is what I'm trying to do with the book, trying to encourage people to just do a bit more of their own research, whether it's on legal identity, digital identity authentication, whether it's on, as I've just been talking about, sort of transhumanist sort of biological enhancements, um, or whether it is, for example, on the digital afterlife, all of these possibilities and tools and services are going to be available to us. But are we really going to go into them um, as wide-eyed as we should be? And are we going to ask the right questions because we're perhaps not as knowledgeable as we should be? Um, so that's what I'm really, really trying to challenge, I guess. Yeah, so, you know, one of the things we've, you know, 
one of the things that's interesting about the US is that they sort of something happens like you have the Robin Hood GameStop moment and government decides to drag all these protagonists into a Senate committee or something. So you have these um and they happen really fast. I mean it's 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 not like six months later. It's like two weeks later these these individuals get dragged to explain themselves. And and in these situations, I mean Zuckerberg has obviously done his bit and they you know the the distance between the lawmakers and the tech companies is just so vast. It's just that they might as well be speaking completely different languages. And and you know you 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 know which is sort of more reason why the individual needs to read up because it's looking like the lawmakers just can't keep up with us. Well, either they can't keep up with it or they don't want to. So it's my belief that really the the lawmakers and those that are responsible for our governance, I'm talking really about um, the Western world, I suppose, um, are very, very close to the corporations that are the technology platforms. And okay, there's this interplay between the two and there's conversation about regulation and antitrust and whether to break them up. But the fact of the matter is, whatever way you look at it, the future, the alternatives for the future, all of them seem to at the moment um, regard technology as absolutely necessary to the functioning of the successful state. Um, and so whether it's Amazon delivering your goods or your pharmaceuticals or whatever, or whether it's the state putting that on for you to go to a convenience store or a pharmacy to collect things in person. Both of them are sort of gravitating towards um, a much more highly interconnected digital set of services that enable that. There's definitely the sense that these platforms, of course, are stepping into the gaps in terms of public services and um, delivering on that in a way that perhaps the public sector or the states can't or won't. But there is a sort of, it feels to me, tacit agreement somewhere behind the scenes or even just in a mindset that it is technology that that will make for a successful state. And so I'm not as convinced that they are as far apart <laughs> as perhaps it's sometimes presented to us. I might be wrong, but um, I think, you know, we are gravitating much more towards the sort of cloud governance structure um, than we are to sort of more traditional nation state structure. I mean, that's still there, of course, at the moment, but it's fraying at the moment because I say the system is sort of has some frailties, is fragile, in, in, it is collapsing. And these tech platforms will step in. They're the size of huge countries. They set their own sort of terms and they, um, they act in ways that to some extent sort of self-regulate themselves. So um, they want to move into education, into healthcare, et cetera. I think the governance is going to be um, a much more technologi technologicalized, if you like, um, way of governing. And most of that will be coming from the cloud, not necessarily from, you know, um, old buildings <laughs> full of, um, lots of people sitting next to each other on the land. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty, I mean, that, that's 
that makes I mean it makes a lot of sense uh, you know when you when when you describe it like that I, I particularly think it's interesting that the, the this is filling the vacuums and holes that that exist within state infrastructure um, I maybe you know you could say I mean judging from what I've been reading about Google in the last um, few weeks the biggest challenges for these companies may come from inside the organizations themselves where the people working have very deep understanding of what's actually happening and when it starts to conflict with their moral and ethical codes um, you start to see disruptive disruptiveness um, so yeah i mean they, they they asked for those kinds of people presumably um when they hired and re when they recruited them so it's not a surprise to think that that should be um what one of the um one of the results i think and you know the big tech corporations are very close to you know the um global globalist organizations the ngos you know and they probably have fairly similar as the many corporates with the ngos have fairly similar sort of worldview and want to do some fairly similar um, things, you know, um, in their mind to help society. Um, that sometimes is going to lead to more technocracy than democracy. And it's going to be interesting to see whether the nation state steps in to moderate that or whether it doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, those are at least two alternative futures on the horizon. It's going to be very interesting to see, you know, how it pans out. Yeah, I mean, I, th I, I think the sort of Silicon Valley, rosy-eyed, I mean, such a lot of naivety, you know, which is, how could our networks possibly be used for evil? <laughs> um, you know, we, we, we set out and we established ourselves for good, that we believe that connection is the most important thing. Um, and, and sort of claiming this just sort of massive naivety in, in light of the idealism that they were they were founded on um, is quite is, is quite interesting so what obviously people have to read your book to obviously <laughs> come up with the conclusion but what what obviously you were talking about um, a lot of um, people taking responsibility for themselves and um, being aware of what they're signing up for. What are the other kind of, um, in America, they like to say takeaways or takeouts, or <laughs> how, should we, how should we unpack um, your conclusions um, as, to far, as far as individual responsibility is, is concerned? What, what, I guess, what is on the, you know, you talked about sort of this uh, really interesting kind of blend of, of man and machine um, what other things do you think we should be looking at on the horizon and be watching for um, that we don't quite we aren't quite aware of right now? Mm. So um, there's a whole chapter on um, the way in which we use media to not only sort of um, present ourselves to, but to perform ourselves and the ways in which the media that's now available to us um, can inform our own identity and then our own ideas of how we should represent that identity. Um, that's, I think that's a fascinating subject because that is, as you've alluded to earlier in the conversation, moving 
pretty quickly. You've got all these guys on Twitch where they've got virtual avatars. Um, they're almost virtual beings in a game gamified um, environment in which the audience can also have a say um, in terms of how that avatar I'm doing air quotes person is um, represented um, and I go into that in quite a lot of detail and talk about what's happening in Japan um, and anime otaku culture and how I feel that we are moving towards uh, media culture which is really encouraging of us to present ourselves as characters and I think that's got some real big knock-on effects for the likes of Hollywood <laughs> and advertising and marketing so to me that's that's the whole virtual environment and, and virtual representations I mean we saw the the guy who turned up to the court hearing and then had the cat filter on you know everybody was laughing at it was very humorous but there's a serious point behind it you know that potentially in the future you're going to have lots of different personas wardrobe yeah. of avatar to be used in different ways potentially you address the right way at the right occasion yeah yeah exactly but also it's going to disrupt time and space because potentially you could send more than one avatar to more than one meeting at the same time so yeah. then you get into the question about productivity and what's expected of us in the future around productivity and there's a chapter for example where i talk a lot about the ways in which work is obviously moved in the past and now and much more so in the future from the physicality of work to the the cognition of work and actually how we'll be so much more connected to ai and therefore in those sorts of uh, work environments although you won't think of it as a work environment um where you're much more collaborative either with robots or with artificial intelligence or an, a non-human intelligence of some sort what does that mean for who you are and how you work with these other intelligences um what does it mean for your job your occupation but also your own personality and building of your own character because you are alongside something that we haven't really it got that much um, experience of and could it be in the future that some of these non-biological intelligences get a certain set of rights are they the same as the human rights that you as a human uh, enjoy or are they rights um, that can be ascribed to a person but they're a more limited set of rights so that's very interesting and that's moved a lot of that conversation has moved out of the sort of ethics um, debate into a legal debate so it becomes much more practical and I, that's fascinating too and I don't know how much people are aware of that maybe, maybe they are and then again there's the sort of digital afterlife you know what happens to your digital persona your digital identity um, once you're no longer with us in the physical world who curates that who manages it um, how have they got the rights to do that? What happens to your assets that you've built up? You've got a load of NFTs. You've built up some assets in the virtual world. Um, your digital identity maybe is connected to those. What happens once your physical identity is no longer there? You know, there, there are so many implications and impacts that it's endlessly fascinating, but I've tried to at least give people a taster of sort of six or seven or eight, you know, areas of life where, you know, we really should start to think about this on a personal level and take more responsibility. Yeah, I, had, I, I got to get your take on this. I had a really interesting conversation with a very um, interesting commercials. I mean, he's a film director, commercials director. We were talking about TikTok culture. And his point was 
there's so much creativity there, but it's all being directed about around fame, i.e. you have to be a personality. And in his mind, not everyone is equipped to be a personality, but it doesn't mean they don't have brilliant ideas. And it was, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, Except was, I challenge that to say that what has changed is that in the new world, anybody can have personality. Yeah. That anybody can have character, charisma, personality, because basically you code it. So th this is my point, really, that um, mm. no longer are we just sort of limited to the sort of psychology of self and the biology of self. And there's always been a conversation about which is more important or which does identity um, kind of reside in more uh, strongly. But now we have the technology of self that goes alongside that. So it's psychology, biology and technology of self. And so it means that if in the real world, perhaps you didn't have the propensity to have that much character, well, now you can as you represent yourself in the virtual world. And increasingly, the virtual and the real world is a hybridized world anyway. So actually, maybe it is the case that in the future, everybody can have character. And I think probably they will. It seems like there's massive mm. implications on education. You mm. know, how, how these skills are going to be taught. And again, it's got back to, um, you know, does, do, these do these institutions have the ability to keep up or ultimately will people ultimately be self, you know, self-educated? Um, yeah, well, we have the technology to self-educate now yeah. if we want to we seeing yeah. in the education system is that we had the factory model of education mm -hmm. which came out of the post-war sort of ordered managed thing that i was talking about earlier and now we need to find a way um, for education to take place in the networked digitized interconnected world and potentially that is hugely exciting if only we could uncouple or decouple ourselves from you know the, the model that we have been following because it's not it's going to be limited and it won't allow us to explore the potential for some of these talents and brains and skills that young people have and, and let them flourish and fulfill their potential in this new model. Mm. So just in the last couple of minutes, um, having, when did you last work inside an ad agency? Was it 2017 or 2015? Um, yes, yeah. Although I do, have, I do do some work for some, um, well, one in particular, but uh, I've still got, I still got, um, you know, uh, I still dip my toe in the water of the ad agency world these days. <laughs> Not too much, though. What does what does all having 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 put all this together and thought deeply, mm. and you continually think deeply about it? What I mean, obviously, in ninety seconds, we don't have time to go through everything. But what do, what do you feel the big implications are for that that industry? Hmm. It's interesting, I was thinking about this the other day, which is more um, which, which is more in danger, brands or marketing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I was wondering about whether we really need brands in the future or whether everything is just a personal brand, if you see mm -hmm. what I mean. Yeah, I, I think that's I don't know necessarily what the answer is yet, um, but I think we are moving to a world, I mean, in the old days when Stephen King um, and Jeremy Bournemouth were thinking mm -hmm. about brands, they were thinking about direct versus indirect and retail brands versus manufacturer brands. 
to me, one thing's for sure, we are moving towards the sort of personal brand. And even with the personal brand, you can have a several different kind of identities within that. You can have a very authentic one. You can have a pseudonymous um, identity within that. You know, you'll be doing lots of different, you'll have lots of different facets and doing things in lots of different ways. And I suppose one of the conclusions of the book is, and the discoveries for me, is that I feel that as we move forward into the future, identity is less about authenticity, which is something, and an, which is a, an idea actually that the marketing industry has for quite a long time been a little bit obsessed by, you know, authenticity. To me, it's less about authenticity and it's more to do with integrity. How do you keep all of these connections coherent um, and together? So there's a semblance of integrity, whether it's a, a product or a brand or a person or a character, whatever it is that has identity in the future. Um, it's not really proving that it's authentic so much as it is as connecting it together and maintaining some sort of integrity. So I guess what I'm saying is I think it's less about the things and it's more about the relations between things in a connected world. And so for me, that's how we should think about identity and potentially, now you've asked me the question, <laughs> That's how we should start to think about brands. Yeah, I mean, it, it leads to me, it makes me think that the, the brands that succeed allow these personal identities to flourish and, and they are enablers. And if you're not an enabler and an enhancer of, a, of these multiple, whatever, how would we define personal identities? And obviously that's always sort of been the case, but doing it in within this kind of multifaceted network world um, in really creative and interesting ways is, is going to be the future. Well, I think in the 20th century, we spent a long time thinking about how to define the brand. Yeah. And perhaps in the yeah. 21st century, it's about how to maintain the brand amongst this chaotic and complex mm. world, keep yeah. those relations with integrity. So, so maybe, maybe we should be moving towards that. Brilliant. So, um, is the book going to be published in the United States or is it just available in the UK? It's out in, it's out in May in the United States. It's out um, on the 18th of March in the UK. All right. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time and such an interesting conversation. I really enjoyed it. I now have to dive into the book and I'm going to come back at you with questions <laughs> later. <laughs> Ed, thank you so much for having me and thanks for your support. Appreciate it. Thank you. This is your host, Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.